Welcome to Downstage Center, a presentation of XM Satellite Radio and the American Theatre Wing. I'm John Von Susten, Program Director of XM28 on Broadway. And I'm Howard Sherman, Executive Director of the American Theatre Wing. Twenty-five years ago, outside the Dakota here in New York, John Lennon was shot down in the prime of his life, the prime of his career. Lennon is being remembered now on Broadway in a show called Lennon. There are nine people in the cast of Lennon, all at one point or another, play the title character. They go in and out of different roles. They're male, female, white, black, Hispanic, Asian. Everybody has been affected by John Lennon at one point or another. Today, Terrence Mann, welcome Terry, Thank who you. is one of the Lennons in the show, Lennon. Terry, welcome to XM Satellite Radio and Downstage Center. Thanks. Thanks. It's great to be here. This is a very interesting show because it's uh, much in the manner of Godspell and shows like that where there's a rock band on stage and uh, you folks, the nine of you, go in and out of characters, in and out of costumes right in front of us. There are no scenery changes. Right. There are prop changes and all that. Right. How did Lennon, the show, come about? Well, it, it, was a, um, it was an idea and a concept that Don Scardino came up with. Um, I think ever since John's death, uh, or even before his death, people have always wanted to do a show about Lennon. And I know a lot of folks had gone to Yoko Ono to approach her, saying, can we do something? And it always ended up being some sort of an impersonation, you know, some a one, one person playing Lennon, you know. And she never wanted it to be that way, uh, for various reasons. One of which is, uh, in her mind, and I think in the world's mind, that he, he was bigger than one person in that respect. So... Um, when Don Scardino came to her and said, I've got nine folks, nine people, as you said, of, of all cultures, races, ethnicity, and uh, they're all going to play Lennon at a given point, that's when she went, ah, what a great idea. So that was the genesis of it, and that's how it got, got you know, on. Well, to be, to be you know, clear, it's not Beatlemania. <laughs> it's it is not, not Beatlemania, no. It, it is, is literally after the Beatles. It's, it's the story of John Lennon. It's, it's told with his music after the Beatles. And there are brief references to the Beatles and a little bit of Beatles music, but it's gotta mostly... Be, yeah, yeah, gotta yeah. be. Yeah, because he said, you know, he said, I had two great relationships in my life. One is Paul McCartney, the other is Yoko Ono. So you've, you've got to have that there. Now, when, when, when you came to the part, how familiar were you with Lennon's own music? I was very familiar with it. I mean, I learned how to play the piano listening to Abbey Road, and I watched the Ed Sullivan show when, you know, they first came on, and I was also, when I was in college, on the steps of... Jacksonville, uh, Florida, county courthouse, you know, protesting and singing Give Peace a Chance and being arrested and stuff, you know, doing our sit in. So the whole thing resonates for me in a personal way because, um, you know, we were all standing up for something at that point. Every so often we have an opportunity to talk to actors about the experience of playing a part of somebody who really lived. Now, obviously, in the case of Lennon, everybody's taking a piece of his life and a piece of his character. But you are doing it with Yoko Ono around. Mm. Um, what? She's not the creator of the show, as you said. Don Scardino created it. But what? Uh, what has been her direct input to you, or has she really let Don do the show? Do you just get to sit around at night and hear stories about John Lennon after <laughs> rehearsals? Uh, all of the above. She's a. She has been around. She's been a huge champion of the show. And she's just been so, you know, forthcoming and and, and uh, positive and, and supportive of us doing it. Um, but she is the final arbiter on it. I mean, the buck stops with her in terms of what goes on the stage there, because she wants whatever depictment's going to be put up there to be to be accurate. And who would know better than she at this point, you know, about about his life and his times and what his effect was on 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 her, on on us, on the world, on music and politics. 
Well, in in line with that, since as you say she's the final arbiter, the show did play out of town uh, in San Francisco. Right. Uh, as some people know, there was a decision made. There was going to be a Boston engagement. The decision was made mm-hmm. to continue. That there needed to be more work on the show. That that running the production in Boston wasn't going to be conducive to that work. Right. How has Lennon evolved from rehearsals? Into into San Francisco and and how is it changing from San Francisco? Right. Well, as you guys know, the the the, the third character in any play or musical is the audience, and and that's why you go out of town. That's why you do previews. That's why because it you have to involve them and their reaction and 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 how it's perceived. And um, it, the thing that San Francisco taught us very swiftly and effectively was that. Um, there was some chronology that needed to be reordered and that it needed to be clearer in terms of a narrative, that there needed to be somebody playing Lennon that could narrate us to take us from moment to moment to moment to moment while all the other Lennons are, are either in the scene or are, you know, or, or, or are taking, um, doing the storytelling. So uh, that's what we found out in San Francisco, that we needed to, like, you know, Make the thing a little more chrono- chronologically ordered, and give the narration to uh, to Will Chase, who plays uh, the sort of lead John Lennon, if you will, who takes us from moment to moment. Because that's always in the theater. You know, when you're doing something that's not like a direct sort of linear storytelling thing, you've got to have something that 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 can keep the energy and the momentum of it going from the next moment to the next moment to the next moment. Whether it's a piece of music, whether it's an actor, whether it's you know some sort of a some some sort of storytelling, so that's what he effectively does. On the subject of uh, Yoko Ono, uh, there are some painful moments in her life, obviously. Uh, one of which is when uh, Lennon himself had a little bit of a, a dalliance uh, sexually with other women, mm-hmm. and that's included in the show. Yes, it is. And I've, I've heard that she wanted that in that she she didn't didn't want to kind of whitewash it. Wanted to even put the bad stuff along with the good stuff. Yeah, I'm, you know, warts and all. This was a man who was always in search of his authentic self. This was a guy who wanted to be uh, as much of an icon as he was. He wanted to be normal, if that's the right word to describe anything. He wanted to be of the people, you know, and and that's been really important in terms of what she has wanted us to perform, you know, wanted us, wanted us to portray. Mm-hmm. Uh, so when she was in rehearsal, how did it feel being up there portraying her husband when she was, was sitting in the audience watching you? It was bizarre. I mean, the very, the very first time she came to see <clears throat> to see us do a run through. I mean, all of the words, all of the storytelling, all of the words, and all of the storytelling in the show uh, are actual words that John Lennon spoke. <laughs> it, uh, there's nothing that's been paraphrased. It's actual, either you know, uh, pieces of uh, of interviews or, or or direct storytelling or, or first person accounts of what was said. So I, you know, I do the the bed in. I play John Lennon in the bed in, right. and to. I'll never forget, we're sitting there for the first time, and I, we, we, at the end of every rehearsal day, we would always watch videotape of, of John Lennon and of the other characters uh, that were in the, in the show as well. And we, we used to watch the bed in, and there they were sitting in the bed, and there are those exact words that they're saying, and then all of a sudden there's the script, and here we are 25 years later sitting in a rehearsal hall, and there's Yoko Ono sitting out there and me and Julie Denau saying those exact words that she spoke and her husband spoke in reality it was surreal. Life imitating art, imitating life, imitating. 
Where do we go? But, you know, it's it's an interesting situation to do this show now because even with some of the performers in the show, you've got people involved in this show who probably were children when John Lennon was shot. And for those of us sitting here in this studio, um, except for your publicist who would be, who, who, who was younger, um, we all grew up with this. We knew the story of John Lennon. Right. And what what's been the situation for the younger performers have they actually had to learn about about this man in a way that plenty of us have just absorbed it the way now people absorb you know Tom Cruise or or whomever it might be yeah yes we actually have somebody in the show i think who's 23 so who was born after Lennon mm-hmm. was, was shot um I, well because we're everybody in the show they're all performers. They're all musicians. They're all, you know, actors and singers. And so there's a musicality that everybody, you know, you, that's what you listen to all day long in your life, you know, if you're a performer, is music. For those that didn't know about John Lennon, you hear the music and you hear the Beatles and you hear what he's got to say and talk about. And it, um, it, you, you feel like you're listening to, oh, well, there's, that's the beginning. That was the absolute priceless original of a musical style and culture that was created. And everything else since then has been, in some instances, cheap imitations of this priceless original. Uh, so they're going, oh, all the music that we know today actually came from that, you know. So that sort of uh, epiphany, if you will, for these some of these uh, young, you know, some of the folks in the show was well, pretty cool. Pretty well, cool to hear. Like, like you, I remember watching that Ed Sullivan show, the first Beatles appearance and all that. Um, and I was certainly very aware of Lennon's life and his career, yet I forgot an awful lot about it. So when you're sitting watching the show, you're, remember, you're, you're reminded of things that had happened. Like, oh, yeah, that did happen in his life. So it's a very interesting, you know, biography, so to speak. Yeah, it is. You, um, I, I, um, I, 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 like the stories, like the warts and all stories mm-hmm. about, uh, you know, the Yoko Ono let us rather put in the show about, you know, his, his dalliances, and I didn't know anything about that. I didn't know that, I didn't know a lot about the Jerry Rubin thing. I'd mm-hmm. read it in the Rolling Stone magazine about him and Abby Hoffman and how Jerry Rubin kind of, you know, really, you know, attached himself like a rem- remora to, to, to John Lennon and then said one thing and did something completely, you know, antithetical to what John really wanted. And I didn't know that it had that much of a, there was that much of a contradiction in terms of what John says, we're going to do this peacefully. Ruben says, we'll do whatever it takes to get mm-hmm. our platform heard. So I didn't know that it went that deep and that at one point he was trying to really cut himself off from Jerry Rubin because that was not the way he wanted to go. So that stuff, the the, the sort of quagmire that this this guy got himself into by saying, I believe simply in peace. Let's shoot for that. Let's try for that. And let me ask you guys a question. Do you... Is John Lennon the first icon, an artist, to come up and and uh, with that kind of celebrity and that kind of power and really st- state his political case I and mean, really create a bully pulpit, in effect, for, for it? Is he the first one to ever do that? Jane Fonda did it. Right. But anybody she, she, before that? Was was Fonda a little bit after Lennon? Because, I mean, he, he, he got involved. It was all during Vietnam. And I think Lennon may have 
been mm. first. I'm not sure about the chronology, but certainly at the same time. But I think Lennon was certainly on the world stage much bigger than Jane Fonda. Absolutely. And I know he started his, uh, the whole, well, because of the Vietnam thing, uh, Give Peace a Chance, which started in 68, you know, right after the Tet right. Offensive, right. you know, when it got really ugly there. And I'm trying to think of anybody before him who used their celebrity and said, I'm going to find ways, a bed in, you mm-hmm. know, a concert. I'm going to find ways to to bring all of these young people together and and let us and say to them, you have a right as a culture, even though you're 18 years old, even though you're 19 years old, you have a right mm-hmm. to say this is wrong. And you know the difference simply between what's right and wrong and what's being covered up and what's not. Whether he was the first or not, it's funny. I, I, I can't think of a specific figure, but... but um, I was thinking of the movie A Face in the Crowd with Andy Griffith, who plays this kind of hick folk singer who slowly becomes a mouthpiece for, for yeah. certain views. And and certainly Bud Schulberg, who wrote that, probably was, was basing it on people, or at least the specter of that happening. Um, the But that was using the, the idea of using one's fame to influence people, in some cases in a negative way. Yeah, yeah. Certainly John Lennon spoke out only for for the best of what people could be right um and that that positive image certainly remains and is probably why we're still you know, aside from the fact that he was a great songwriter probably the reason that there could be a show about him all these years later is because of those qualities and it's that things like that that i i didn't know until we got into sort of working on the project that the profound the profundity of what he did i mean the profound effect that he had on uh, he paved the way for for the likes of Sting and, and Bono, who are doing what they do now, you know. And and of, and of course, you've also got the situation where, for a certain generation of people, there are those who remember where they were when Kennedy was shot. Right. I was too young for that. I remember exactly where I was when I learned that John Lennon had been shot. And so, as eras go on, there are different touchstones, and it's yeah. it's really interesting to see where where this show is going to take people either the people who knew the stories or the people who who were revisiting it and indeed finding out things that they didn't know at the time yeah. about this man who who certainly was so in the public eye yeah. what's very interesting sitting in the audience at the broadhurst uh, theater where the show is running um the audience really gets into it really participates uh, emotionally, I think, in what's going on up on stage. You don't just sit back and watch a show you, because you, you basically relive a good part of your life. Even people who are younger, Absolutely. I think, uh, are learning about Lennon, and people of my age and you know who were like Howard and myself and yourself uh, around when Lennon himself was alive and performing, you, right. you kind of remember that whole era. Yeah, you do. And the, th- the young people that are coming to see it we, after the show, we, there's been a uh, there's Lennonites now that come see the show, <laughs> and they get the rush seats. They sit down in the front row, and they're there, and they're wrapped. And I think it, 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 I mean, it resonates because we're in a situation now in Iraq, you know, where the, it's the same situation. We're losing, we're losing our young men and women over there for, well, from my point of view, for no apparent reason. And it resonates, and for kids to be sitting in the audience going, gosh, they were doing that then about the Vietnam War, and it, it's, we're we're right back where we started from. It's the, it's the same chant. It's the same, you know, um, mantra that we need to say to, to to the world. You know, it's also interesting um, seeing the video clips. Like we talked before about Jerry Rubin, seeing the video clip of him on was it the Mike Douglas show? One of those yep. uh, shows, Douglas, and what was the other show? Uh, was it Merv Griffin? Merv Griffin. Yeah, yeah. Seeing those old video clips, the way people dressed back then. Oh my and, gosh. Yeah. 
I know. Could you imagine? I mean, we had those bell bottoms and those those shirts that weren't even made from natural fabric. <laughs> we mentioned before um, the song "Give Peace a Chance," which certainly is a as an anthem, so to speak. Yeah. And that's a song which you basically start off, and then the the other members of the cast uh, join in. Yeah, it comes right out of the bed in actually when we you you, you do the uh, which is where it was sung, you know, around the bed in the hotel rooms in Montreal and Amsterdam. Uh, so uh, that's. Yeah, for, for those who may not be aware of what the bed-in was, what, it was Yoko and John's protest. It was Yoko and John's protest against the war. And, and, and in 1968, I guess it was, uh, uh-huh. against the Vietnam War, and they decided to uh, create a, f- uh, a, a forum whereby people could come and talk to them about the war, and they were going to sit in bed in Montreal and Amsterdam for seven days, and they were going to talk to reporters or anybody who wanted to come along and talk to them about this war and, and just create a, a dialogue about it, just to bring it into the, to the people's consciousness about it. And, uh, and Dick Gregory showed up and all kinds of people. Al Cap, the cartoonist, showed up. And there Tommy was very, Smothers. Tommy Smothers was, you know, showed up. And very contentious uh, exchange between uh, Al Cap and, and John Lennon and, and, uh, and, uh, and for those Derek who Taylor. For those who don't remember Al Cap, Al Cap was a cartoonist who wrote, uh, well, certainly fans of, of this station would probably know Lil, uh, Abner. Lil Abner, which became a musical. But Al Cap began as a very liberal uh, writer, and as he got older and older, moved farther and farther towards right-wing views until very late in his life he was he was writing a, a heavily right-wing comic strip. So an interesting uh, yeah. idea that he was up there at the bed in. I'd never heard that. Well, we have, we have an audio clip of you and the cast performing Give Peace a Chance. This is actual audio from the show, which does not exist yet on a CD. Right. So the first time, unless you've been at the Broadhurst Theater seeing Lennon, the first time people are going to hear Give Peace a Chance from Lennon the Musical. From Lennon the Musical, Give Peace a Chance. We're talking with Terry Mann, who is one of the, the several Lennons up on stage. Uh, Terry, what... what um, when you leave the theater, how do you feel having performed what is basically um, an entertaining, kind of fun show, but with a heavy message? How do you feel walking out at night? Well, it's, it's very personal to me uh-huh. because uh, I, um, I lived on 71st Street. Uh, like we've been talking, and I grew up, we grew up, you know, listening to John Lennon and, and, and being a part of his life and music to a degree. And I lived on 71st Street, so I used to see John when I, and I got here in 1979. And the, I saw him twice in this, uh, uh, in, in the drugstore on uh, Columbus. The uh, Dakota's on 72nd. Second, yeah, right. so it's a block away. Yeah, and I lived on 71st. And I actually was home that night watching, as you said, uh, really when we were talking about where you remember where Kennedy was shot and where John was shot. I was home after doing, um, I was doing the show Barnum, and I was home watching uh, um, Richard Chamberlain's Hamlet on TV, and it snowed. A light snow was that light. I had the window open, and I remember hearing the gunshots because I was just a block over by. Wow! Because it was very quiet that night. Bam! 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 Had, had, did you ever speak to him when you saw him in, in the drugstore? Yes, you did. I did. We, we he we were. I was in the drugstore. He walked in to get something, and I just turned to him. I mean, you know, knew the guys behind the counter. They all knew him by name. Hi, John. They said, "Hello, how are you?" <laughs> and I said, "I." I love your music, man. He said, thanks very much. Wow. <laughs> well, you know, we, we began this interview and we launched right into Lennon, and we didn't even talk about some of 
your other work, Terry, and you know you are originating a role here in Lennon, uh, the, the first uh, big new musical of the current Broadway season. But you are no stranger to originating roles in Broadway musicals. Uh, it's a few things that people have heard of, such as Beauty and the Beast, Les Mis, and Cats. That's a pr- that alone obviously doesn't represent your entire resume, but but. For those three shows alone, that's that's quite extraordinary. Do you, at the time, in, in each case, certainly both Cats and Les Mis had come over from, from England. There was some awareness of what they were. But, but did you realize that you were really becoming part of Broadway history with those shows? Um, I realized I was becoming a part of something that was going to run for a long time, and I could rent an apartment and buy a bunch of clothes, and I knew I'd be, I would be having a paycheck for at least two years. I knew that because the advance on Cats in 1982, I believe, was $5 million. Wow. And at that time, it would be like $20 million today. Wow. So I knew we were uh, – I was into something that was phenomenal. There was a phenomenon about it. And then for it to happen again with Les Mis, because it was Trevor Nunn, who I knew from Cats, and, you know, it's just like – better to be lucky than to be good in a way you know being in the right place at the right time and having uh, you know i guess the goods to sort of say yeah you can sell this one too so to have that happen twice to have lightning strike twice like that is, is very fortunate and some very good roles javert and, and the and, tugger and, and and the beast and beauty and the beast and the beast and beauty and the beast. some pretty good roles yeah, did animals, you, they're all animals. <laughs> How long did you do each of those roles for? I mean, the, the shows, I mean, one, of course, is still running Beauty and the Beast. The other two ran for a long, long time. How long were you in them for? Uh, Cats, I was in for two and a half years altogether. Mm-hmm. And Les Mis, I did, um, I did for a year, the first year. And then um, the year it closed, 16 years later, 17 years later, I went back in to close the show. And... That was a trip. Um, I, I uh, and, and Beauty and the Beast, I was in for uh, two years. Did Did you do touring companies something in between, or just mm-hmm. the, just the Broadway? Just version? the Broadway. Yeah. Very often, when we talk to actors who have have replaced people in shows, the question is always, you know, did you see your predecessor? Did you want to see what they were doing? And they're all very careful to say, "Well, I saw it once for the blocking, but I I really wanted to make it my own." <laughs> in your case. Did you ever have the opportunity to go back and watch what other people did with the roles that you created? Uh, I did. I, um, I I saw a couple of guys do do the tugger, and they were great. Um, uh, and you know they they stole a lot of my stuff, which is good. And then <laughs> I went and stole a lot of their stuff for the next show I was doing. And I saw um, I saw Beauty and the Beast, but I don't remember who was playing it at the time. I saw it a little bit after I left. Um, and Les Mis, I saw Anthony Cravella do it. He was wonderful. And I saw, and I think that was the only other time I saw it. But, yeah, I did. And, you know, I, I, you know there's a, all of us in this business are fans of one another. It's, it's, I mean, that's what I have found. You know, that there's this big misnomer about that. There's so much com- competition out there, and it's always all about Eve, you know. And it's, and it's really, we really are supportive and champions of each other's work at all the time because, who else do we have with each other to sort of say, you know, you know something, I know something. If we can get to here, we can get to there, let me know. It's much better to network that way than to be, you know, um, at odds with one another. So um, it's it's great to... So when uh, you were in Cats, how do you create a cat? Um, 
you just lay around in the sun all day <laughs> and you kind of get up and you eat a little food and then you oh you um <laughs> i don't know <laughs> um you do the choreography. I mean, Jillian uh-huh. Lynn came in and gave us some, some real specific things, uh-huh. you know. That were, and we literally did pr- improv, laying around and doing what cats do, and watching cats. They brought cats into the rehearsal hall, and we sat there and would watch them, and you know, and try to more than more than act like them. You just wanted to kind of catch their vibe, and you know, uh-huh. the kind of way they were that that they can be so what may seem laconic, and then bam, you know, they're moving, you know, and you catch that kind of stuff on it. Uh-huh. How about the other role, Gervais and uh, the Beast? Oh, the Beast was just a uh, uh, the Beast. You know, just kind of that was all taken from the Disney uh-huh. thing. We did watch the Cocteau uh, Beauty and the Beast, which was phenomenal. I mean, it's it's just brilliant and scary, and, and you know, not done with any sort of special effects, but it seemed you know uh, candles in the walls and people's faces, you know. That would come out at you, and it was fast, fascinating. And uh, but uh, the beast, you know, you just kind of tried to take a take a lead from the Disney folks and uh, learning how to. I mean, uh, you know, because you had on this whole what's called an ectoskeleton that you had to put on, mm-hmm. and then the, then the headpiece, head and then you had all these prosthetics on your face, and getting used to that and trying to get a performance through that to the audience was really really difficult. And in the beginning, our first our first performance. The day of our first performance in, 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 in Houston when we were doing it, they had the, the whole the only thing that moved the only thing that moved on the on the on the prosthetics were my eyes. Nothing else moved because the prosthetics were covered my entire face. Wow. And there were these rods that went from the head into the ectoskeleton and the shoulders. So you it was literally like uh, like Frankenstein. And we did this run through for Jeffrey Katzenberg and um, uh, Michael Eisner. From from Disney. From Disney, yep. yeah. Uh, in the afternoon before we did our first preview. And they watched it, and Jeffrey Katzenberg came backstage going, oh, my God, oh, my God, we've got to get this off his face. Because the great thing that happened was when we did our final run-throughs in the rehearsal halls, uh-huh. which is always magical because all the money people come and the producers come, and there's no sets, there's no costumes. It's just the storytelling, the singing, and the actors, and the emotion. Uh-huh. And, and it always works, and it's brilliant because, um, because in... Everybody else is making up the sets and the costumes in their imagination. Uh-huh. And all of a sudden, when they saw that thing in Houston, Katzenberg went, oh, my gosh, we can't see this performance. We can't see this man's, this man, this this, uh-huh. uh, this emotion. So between shows, they cut all this stuff away and they rejigged the whole thing so that things could move and every stuff. And it's to their credit, you know, that they saw that and knew what it was supposed to be. So your whole face eventually was seen. <laughs> Pretty much, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the prosthetics were just there. To, you got you got enough of it. To make you look more beastly. Yes. Exactly. How long did it take to get into costume then? Sounds involved. The first time we ever did it, it took eight hours. Wow. When we when they were doing it, we were doing a commercial shoot, and they were doing all these prosthetics. And by the time we were doing it, literally, uh, by the time we were doing it for performance in New York, it took 40 minutes. Hmm. Went from eight hours to two hours in one big swoop, and then two hours to about an hour, and then 40 minutes. Wow. With two people working on you. Talking about Beauty and the Beast, why don't we play one of your songs from the cast album Beauty and the Beast? What one should we play? Oh, uh, I think um, If I Can't Love Her would be the one. And how does that work in the show, for those who haven't seen it? It's at the end of the first act uh-huh. uh, where he realizes that, you know, he feels this thing for Belle. And 
and uh, he he realizes that who he has been is is not the person that is it's not what he wants to be, even though he's trapped in this body. And he sings, "If I can't find a way to love her, then I can't find a way to to love anything. So I've got to change." Beauty and the Beast, nineteen ninety four, was it? Beauty and the Beast. Sure. <laughs> if, if we say you, so. You, you will agree to that, right? I, I'll say it was indeed 1994. 1994. So it's been running 15 years on Broadway. Uh, Terry, I wanted to ask uh, about some work that you've done uh, more as a director and even an artistic director. You've done some work. You went to school down in North Carolina, and I see that you've you've done some other work down there artistically involved with Lost Colony, the, the pageant that's been mm. played down there for decades. Yeah. Can you tell us about that? Sure. Um, my very first... I went to the North Carolina School of the Arts, and um, my first year I was there, which was like 1971, I guess it was. Uh, my acting teacher said, "Do you want to come? You want to come get a, do a job for the summer, make thirty-five dollars a week?" I said, "Yay! <laughs> I'm living large." And I said, "What is it?" He said, "Well, it's the uh, it's the story of the Lost Colony." And I vaguely knew about the the Lost Colony and the settlement that took place in 1587, the very first one before Jamestown, like 40 years before Jamestown. And um, I said, sure. So Joe Layton, who was a Broadway director, um, sort of took it over in 1960. It had been going on since 1937 as a pageant. And it's, and it's a depictment on the actual site where the, um, the lost colony was, where the fort was. They found the remains of the fort. And, they, and so in 1937, the people on the island decided to, you know, as a celebration of that, do a pageant or the the storytelling of it, and um, it's been gone through various incarnations with various people directing it. And then Joe Layton, Broadway director, came down in the '60s and revamped it to make it turn it into a real musical, as it were. And um, so I went down there and worked there in the early '70s, and uh, did it for five years, off and on through the '70s. And then when I came to New York, um, Joe Layton was directing Barnum, and uh, he saw me walking into the open call for Barnum and. He said, what are you doing here? I said, I'm auditioning for your show. He said, great. So I got my first break on Broadway because I knew Joe Layton from Lost Colony. Uh, And then, fast forward to 2000, uh, they were looking for a director, and they called me up and said, would I be interested in doing it? And I said, absolutely, Uh, because I learned learned a lot about what I do as a performer. I learned a lot about the business, being down there, working with Joe Layton and Fred Vopel and Nan Knight and all, and um, so um, I went down and directed it for four years, and hmm. then uh, when Lennon came along, I said, "I got to go do Lennon," <laughs> and they said, "Okay." But when you get vacation, you'll probably go back. Probably, yeah. yeah I I, well, that's been a long time involvement then, better than three decades, it sounds like. Yes, for you. Yes, yeah. At least being a part of it and wanting to, you know, staying mm-hmm. in touch with it. And, right. going down there, yeah. and Barnum was your first Broadway experience. It was as the ringmaster, was it? It was. Yeah. I, well, actually, I was in the I was in the the ensemble and uh-huh. I understudied the ringmaster and and, uh, and and Barnum, but then I took over for. Uh, uh-huh. And as we talk about some of your your other roles, uh, we'd be remiss if we didn't bring up the original Assassins. Off Broadway, which is a show that certainly musical theater fans continue to discuss, and the revival last year brought a lot of attention to it. Um, What was what were your feelings last year when this show that 
when it first came around, there was a lot of hope that it was going to move on to to something bigger and better, and, and it it ended up with a short run originally in mm-hmm. 91. Did you get a chance to see it when it was brought to Broadway, and, and what were your feelings about seeing how the piece had changed? Um, I didn't see it, actually. Uh-huh. I didn't get a chance to see it. Um, I was in the middle of... We, we, just had a baby, and we had just adopted a little baby from China. So I hadn't. I was in. I was in kind of parent world there, and I didn't really get a chance. But a lot of my friends saw it, and uh, you know. And uh, I'm just glad it finally got up again. And it's sort of bizarre that the first time around we were at war in the Gulf with a Bush in office, and then, uh, gosh, all of a sudden, how many years later? About ten, uh, what? Tw- well, it, w- it would have been 13 years 13 later. Years yeah, because 91 was the original, and it was yeah. 2004 for yeah. the revival. And then you have, uh, we're in the war in the Gulf in Iraq, and we have a Bush in office. Bizarre. Hmm. Bizarre hmm. sort of synchronicity. Very weird. <laughs> uh, let's talk about Les Mis. Yeah. Javert in that. Les Mis, I think, is the third longest-running show on Broadway. Cats, the longest-running. So you've been in two out of the And Beauty and the Beast is, is coming up there it's, it's really very fast. Close, very close, in the top ten for sure. Mm. Number uh, six, we're whispered by the publicist. <laughs> 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 we're loose here. Ju- Juliana is here waving her hands. Say hi, Juliana. Hi. Hi. <laughs> Uh, what well, we we were talking about, Les Mis. Les Mis, yeah. yeah. You were in that for a couple of years, did you say? I uh, yes. One, well, I was in it for the first year, and then I came back for came the last back. three months when it last was closed. Three months, yeah, Sixteen yeah, years later. Yeah, yeah. yeah. What do you think about that show? Made it so popular? Oh man, it two things. Good storytelling is good storytelling is good storytelling, and it was a, and the good storytelling was about the indomitability of the human spirit. And that's all you need. That's why it was so brilliant. I mean, and that's what we we keep looking for, you know, good storytelling. That's all you ever want. And told through some pretty good music, too. Told part of the storytelling. Told through some amazing music. Crafting a musical is the hardest thing in the world to do, to succeed in. With these long runners, I, I wanted to ask, it's interesting that Les Mis ran some 15 years or so, and, uh, Certainly, Beauty and the Beast continues to go on, and they were real. You know, they've really made their mark in an interesting way and sustained that. Beauty and the Beast really opening up true family audiences, uh, a, a, a real Broadway show that you can take young kids to. Mm-hmm. Certainly, Les Mis, the the serious Broadway musical, uh, in Dramatic a way Broadway musical. I don't know of any other musical that. It may have created its own genre. Well, it, it certainly, I mean, it was such a thick with story, to use an awful phrase. But, you know, there was something interesting that happened with Cats, and I'm wondering what your perspective is, which is Cats, which was in its day, you know, back in 81, which was a phenomenon. It was the producers of its day. It was the hottest ticket. It was a must-see. And as that show went on, oddly enough, it became... In the eyes of some, people became very jaded about it and very cynical about it. And you started seeing comedians doing jokes about Cats and everything else, which never happened to those other shows. Mm -hmm. Do you think Cats was a show of its time and then it just continued on? And do you think sometimes these long runs aren't always conducive to to thinking about the shows in the best way? I I, I think you said it all. (laughs) I don't know. I, I I think there's a little truth to all of what you're saying. But the cat phenomenon, 
I think it had two things going for it. Uh, and this was the this was the beginning of the British invasion, uh, you know, because it got a great. I don't know what the notices were in London about cats, but it it got the word of mouth and the success of it over there was just unbelievable. And I think people want to like, you know, went wow, the British are doing this. What's that all about? And it was a pop musical, and it was an Andrew Lloyd Webber thing. So you know, you've got the. The, the you know you've got Joseph and the Amazing Technical Dreamcoat and you've got you know Jesus Christ Superstar and then you had Evita Evita so you've got that you know that guy doing that music and then he's and his next thing is a thing on Cats so he, the um, the credibility of it was I think established oh no question once once it got here I mean it's a glorified children's mm-hmm. story basically and you either go along with it or you don't. And I think in the beginning, everybody went along with it. And then as time passed and as people grew older, remembering, oh, I I went along with that and kind of <laughs> bought it. Nah, oh, you know, the cat play. Then they have to, like, distance themselves from it. So I, I think, I mean, I, you know, we all used to call it the cat play because, you know, it was... How as as it, alluding to it as the, comparing it to the Scottish play, perhaps? <laughs> <laughs> no. Well, you don't call it by name. No, no, no. <laughs> the cat play. And you don't have to, you know, go outside, spit, turn around three times and ask permission to come back in either. So, um, I don't know what the phenomenon was. Here again, it, it had a certain – there was something fantastical about it, and that was what was needed at the time in the theater. Hmm. There are moments like that, you know, where what comes along is exactly what's needed, and you don't ever know what that is. I mean, I don't really know what the theater just to, I think, I feel right now, the musical theater and theater and musical theater is really trying to find itself right now, trying to redefine itself. It doesn't know what it is. It's trying to go to the next thing because the, the long runs, the, the, the long running shows is over with. What do we do next? So, to that end, you've also written a musical. You adapted Romeo and Juliet. I did. As a musical. I did. And was that your first uh, first piece you'd written? Mm-hmm. And what was the impetus for, for moving into that? As you talk about where's the musical going, certainly taking a public domain, very old text, mm-hmm. uh, but doing it, um, obviously, for, for modern audiences in a more popular style. Right. Well, I, I have two great loves. I love Shakespeare and I love rock and roll music. And I was actually in the Broadhurst doing a play called Getting Away with Murder at the time. And uh, we were in tech and I was sitting backstage, you know, kind of just noodling and I wanted to read something. And it was one of those moments where I just, you know, you're just kind of thinking, uh, how can I be creative? What can I do? What can I get my, you know, I'm going, ah, and I just thought, I just, I want to read Romeo and Juliet again. And then I started, I went out and got a copy of it, and I started reading. I went, this could be a musical. This could be a musical. Well, it had been a musical, West sort West of. Story. <laughs> <laughs> Mr. And, yeah. Sondheim uh, tackled it a few years ago. Yes, he did. And, in fact, I went into the audience, and because the play was written, that I was doing was written by Stephen Sondheim and George Firth. And I went into the audience about two days later. I said, Stephen, um, I'm thinking about, you know, I want to set Romeo and Juliet to music using the original text. And Jack O'Brien was the director, and both of them were sitting there going, well, you can't do it because it doesn't scan. This quatrain wouldn't work. The storytelling doesn't scan. You know, there's too much of Paris. How do you really make it be something that... And they were both flying at it like it can't work. And then at the end of it, Stephen said, 
but I've got some music you can borrow if you'd like to. (laughs) (laughs) Speaking of music, let's play another one of your pieces of music. Why don't you pick from Le Mis, from Cats? Pick a song, we'll play it. Uh, Let's do Le Mis. Let's do Stars from Le Mis. And how did that work in Le Mis? Um, Inspector Javert was relentless in his pursuit of, of Valjean. It was his job, and he was, you know, going to die trying. He was going to find this man. And um, and after he's just missed him, he's just escaped yet again in the sewers of uh, Montparnasse in uh, Paris. He um, does this soliloquy called Stars, basically saying, I will find you, I will find you. I make this pledge to the stars, to the heavens, to the gods, that by by the stars in heaven above... I will find you. As Inspector Javert in Les Mis, Terry Mann, when you introduce this song, you speak French so well. Oh. <laughs> do you speak French in real life? Uh, no, I don't. <laughs> I just can do, do accents if I have to. <laughs> Well, you it was the time in Pimpernel, wasn't it? Oh, that was the time in Pimpernel, yes. <laughs> That's where you pick up the fake French accent. Yes, you'll try to do it as best you can. And it's sounding like Inspector Clouseau more often than not, though. <laughs> That's funny. Well, you, you, you were born in Kentucky. You grew up in the South. I did. But you don't have any uh, trace of a Southern accent. Uh, right now. Right now. Yeah. When I get mad, I get... <laughs> well, when you go back Shelby, home... Shelby, come over here. I'm going to spank your butt. Come here. <laughs> you know. Joe, if you don't stop that... Like that. <laughs> That's very good, very believable. Um, we're talking before about uh, you were talking about uh, what Broadway is becoming. Broadway musicals. Um, how do you assess what's currently going on on Broadway? There's some obviously long-running shows that are still running. Some of the newer work, Lennon being one of them. Mm-hmm. Um, Lennon, of course, based on existing music, John Lennon's music. How mm-hmm. about other than Lennon, uh, without naming names per se, uh, unless you want to? Uh, how do you feel about Broadway musicals currently? I think that the ones that have come along have been brilliant. I mean, uh-huh. the, the likes of the producers and, and, and Spamalot, you know, uh, those are the only ones that come to mind because they're such blockbusters. Things like Avenue Q that mm-hmm. actually want to... I mean, there's a lot of creative stuff going on there. And uh, But um, I I just... You know, I don't know. I, I guess because I I came from the era of, of all of those those blockbusters where you had a lot of, lot of big ones going on all the time. And... And I just, um, I mean, there's Tarzan coming up. Maybe it's because of where things are coming from. Everything is everything's becoming derivative of either movies, or or, or we're doing revivals. And um, I don't know whether that's because the the producers and the and the and the and the, and the money peoples and the corporate sensibilities are saying we have to have things that work. We have to have things that are going to make money. We have to have things in there that have a certain, you know, uh, identify. That that can be that ha- that can be identified as that have a mark that have, you know, cachet or something. And I, where are the writers? They're here, you know. Where are the writers and the and the composers? And then, ultimately, we have so many talented people in this community that could be made stars. Why aren't we making theater stars anymore? Why do we have to, you know, make sure that we've got that name on stage so that people will come? Is this the way it is from here on out? Is musical theater going to go the way of opera, where it becomes something that's so that there's an elitism to it, so that it doesn't exist, you know, in a in a common you know 
open door policies. Everybody can come see this. Opera is for the elite. It's for the intelligentsia. It's for, you know, and I wonder where where we're going with all that. Guys, tell me. Well, I wish we could. <laughs> what we can do is say thank you very much, Terry Mann, for being with us today on Downstage Center. I think that's a very fitting way to end the show. Thanks, man. For the American Theatre Wing, I'm Howard Sherman, reminding our listeners that these programs and all of the educational and media programs of the American Theatre Wing are available online, on demand, for free, from our website, www.americantheaterwing.org. And for XM Satellite Radio, I'm John Von Susten. For Downstage Center, that's a wrap, and thank you.